and welcome to a very special edition of The Stunt Show. I am your host, Mark Zomick, and we have planned quite a program for you today. Our delicate topic today is abuse in our community. When I initially thought about doing a show on abuse and asking our guests to join me, the focus was thought to be primarily abuse of children by people of authority. In light of the events of the past few weeks, I think a discussion is likely to focus on that as well. Disclaimer, of course, the opinions stated during this program are those of the host, me, and my guest, and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the Nahum Single Network. And uh, also, it is my impression that neither the host, me, nor my guest is intent on dancing around difficult issues. I suspect you'll have a lively discussion. My guest today is David Chaifetz. David and I go way back. He, like I, came up through what I call the system. Yeshiva Day School, Yeshiva High School, summer camp, married, moved to the Tina apartments, had kids, sent them to Yeshiva Day School, Yeshiva High School, and summer camps. Of late, David has become quite an advocate and a voice on behalf of victim of abuse. His story, we know now, is all too common. But let's hear it from him. David Chaifetz, welcome to The Stunt Show. Thank you very much. Um, I guess before we tell the story, I want to ask almost rhetorically um, that you've really become an advocate for victims of abuse. Does that imply that there are an advocate for abusers? Um, well, I don't know if you would frame it that way. I don't think I would frame it that way. I think um, uh, what we need to do as a community is to confront unpleasant truths. Um, nobody likes unpleasant truths. And um, I think that for too long, the community has avoided unpleasant truths, not unlike any other community that has struggled with this issue, be it the Catholic Church, be it the Boy Scouts, unpleasant truths that some people were aware of and some people were uh, happily ignorant of. So I don't think that there are necessarily, um, I don't think of it necessarily, I don't think of it as a, um, as some sort of, uh, uh systemic, uh, cover up. Uh, but I do think that it is, there has been many cover ups. There have been many cover ups. Um, and it has bar- been part of, but it has been a part of a systemic denial on the part of our community to believe that our community can have such things, uh, happen in our community the same way that, uh, once upon a time, people would say there's no drug problem in the Jewish community. There's no drinking problem in the Jewish community. Um, you know, these things are falsehoods. And it is quite critical that we as a community face the truth, open our eyes, be brave, and learn how to address this issue. Um, so why don't you give our listeners who may not have heard your name and heard you speak before a little bit background on how you came to this at this point in your, uh, you know, uh, in your life, in your career, in your, you know, in your place. Okay. Um, so, uh, my story, which I think is probably, uh, a fairly common story for, um, uh, many of the archetypes of abuse in our community is, is, you know, fairly straightforward. I, as you say, grew up in the system. I went to uh, Yeshiva Elementary School and Yeshiva High School. Uh, when I was 13 years old in my fifth year of summer camp, uh, Camp Dora Golding, uh, I was befriended by a particular uh, senior member of the staff. 
Um, and over the course of the summer, uh, he, that friendship turned into, uh, instances of sexual abuse. Um, along the way, he gave me alcohol. Um, and I was abused multiple times. I told a bunkmate of mine, uh, uh, I confided in a bunkmate of mine. He shared this information, uh, with the counselor. It was taken to the administration. Um, I was called into the office of the administrator, uh, forced to confront, uh, to, I'm sorry, to confront, uh, my abuser. Um, and then, uh, the, uh, administration, uh, never questioning the guilt of the abuser snapped into action and then sent me on a Greyhound bus all the way home, uh, told my parents that they needed to pick me up from the Port Authority without telling them why. Um, what they did with the abuser, uh, I understand that they let him go quietly at the end of the summer, and I think this was towards the end of the summer. They had Rahmanis on him and on his uh, young wife, who I believe was pregnant, um, and uh, he was quietly let go, and he went off to become a Rebbe for 30 years. So only God knows how many children this guy abused as a result of the inaction of the uh, camp administration at the time. And we're talking about 30-something years ago, 1979. Now, um, I went home, told my parents what happened. Uh, my parents didn't know what to uh, do, uh, and so they did nothing. Uh, didn't call a doctor, didn't call a lawyer, didn't call a therapist, nothing. And so, you know, this was seemingly a forgotten episode in my life. I was always aware of it. It was not a suppressed memory. It was something that uh, I lived with and, and just, uh, it was in the background. I went off. I went to high school. I went to college. I went to Israel. I got married. And, um, every so often, uh, in uh, my adult life, I would hear about a terrible story that would happen to the child of, you know, some friend. You know, we are living here in Teaneck mm -hmm. and I would take a right. parent aside and I would say, you know, it's okay. I could tell you something bad happened to me when I was 13 years old and look at me. I'm fine. And that was about the extent of it until about two years ago when I'm not entirely certain why I've had speculative discussion with my therapist. Uh, I was triggered into post-traumatic stress disorder where all of a sudden the um, events of 30 plus years before started uh, shaking my, my, my world. Um, maybe it had to do with having children of, of that age and things that they were going through, not at all related to abuse, but just being an active and involved parent uh, dealing with, you know, fairly normal developmental uh, issues related to children. Um, or maybe it was just the news at the time two years ago, um, whatever it was, suddenly I was, I was in post-traumatic stress and I couldn't sleep and I had tremendous anxiety. It impacted my work. It impacted my, uh, my, my relationships. Um, uh, it made me very angry. Um, I was already seeing a therapist because my father was dying. So luckily I sort of had a, safety net there and that those discussions you know then turned into 
a, a treatment discussion about the abuse. And, and over the course of, you know, many months, uh, this was really the focus of, of therapy. You know, it's, a, it, it, it's interesting the way you tell the story because I was in Corina that summer, very, very similar camp to Dora Golding. Um, and obviously other than the, just the specific part of the abuse, everything else you describe was typical in those camps. I remember the following summer, actually they broke out color war by giving alcohol to all the kids in camp. I remember a kid, there's a story who's somebody whose name I won't mention who needed to go to the doctor. So his counselor put him in the trunk in his car and drove him out of camp and dropped him off at his parents' bungalow colony or they were routinely kids would be sent home. So I just want to, that's the way these camps were back in the day. It was, it was, it was much more, I don't want to use the word, word irresponsible, but that's sort of the way the camps dealt with things by, by specifically not dealing with them. I definitely think that, you know, part of this was a reflection of the times, but I could tell you, I have been contacted by many people since I went public a year and a half ago uh, on the pages of the Jewish week uh, by many people about their experiences and, by many people about their camp experiences right. and by some people specifically right, there. about right. Dora Golding. Right. And I mean, not just in the past, and apparently it has a fairly notorious reputation going way back, but even in recent years. And we know, thankfully, this past year, there have been no rumors of any uh, abuse of, of children, mm-hmm. but not this past summer, but the previous summer, Correct. there was a well-covered case of abuse. Uh, where there's, uh, I believe that there's a, uh, a lawsuit, uh, uh, underway, uh, with, uh, parents suing the camp. And I don't know the details about right. that, but I've heard from, uh, you know, families of, you know, in recent years where there are such stories and such instances. I mean, the, the reason why I was trying to bring it up is I think that we're at, what I struggle with is, I see a fair bit of nuance in a lot of these discussions, meaning that I don't think that, you know, when we say times are different, that's, that is by no means a, that the, the things that you went through were in any way acceptable in any way, matter, shape or form. But um, I, I do think times were different in terms of um, the, the look, most of those all boys camps were run by third grade Rabam who wanted to make an extra 10 grand over the course of the year, who worked part-time through the year, who had between zero and no training on how to deal with any of this and um, and just were at a loss on what to do. When And, and the truth is, I, I think you might even be lucky in the fact that they acknowledged, quote-unquote, that something happened and and although probably dealt with it completely incorrectly, actually dealt with it as opposed to, I don't know, ostracizing you, telling you were wrong, telling you nothing really happened, telling you it was your imagination, because I'm sure there are many people who tell the story of, they told me I completely misunderstood the situation, and, you know, and they tried to throw it, co- cover it up under the rug, where in this case, you know, they might have been, even been farther ahead of their uh, co-campers as badly as they handled it. Uh, listen, it's it's hard to know what the right thing um, well, we now know what the right thing. The question uh, is, what was the right thing? What then? the right thing then? Obviously, times have changed. You know, I imagine if such an event were to happen today, 
they would uh, act on it immediately. They would right. call the police immediately. And they're Therapists trained on would it. be involved. They would be trained on it. Uh, you know, I can't speak to what went on this past summer in Door Golding when everything, when there are no reports, right. thankfully, of anything bad. And uh, uh, you and I, we live in Teaneck. There are many uh, people in Teaneck, many friends of mine, many friends of yours, I'm sure, mm-hmm. who send their kids to Door Golding. Sure. And, and that's fine. And they're um, very watchful, as parents should be. And look, I don't want to sit and blame our parents, but our parents just didn't have that sense of it was it was uh, it was a, a different time, and people didn't ask those questions. Right, so, and so let's talk about a different time. And I and I and I don't want to, in any way, uh, I'm not sitting here to compare case by case because that's impossible, and comparing person by person is is impossible because everyone is going to take the case differently uh, as it happens to them. But I went to MTA in the in the early 80s. Um, and there is not a single friend of mine in MTA or in the surrounding MTA who did not know about Rabbi Finkelstein's proclivities to wrestle with kids. Yeah. There was not a person who didn't know. Um, so I'm always taken aback 30 years later when it comes out as a big scandal that has, needs a whole investigation. I know you investigated. Ask anybody who went to MTA in the late seventies, early eighties, everybody knew what was going on. Um, and the fact is, and again, I know that I'm in a different situation. Of course, I take things differently. I was, I don't want to use the term victim because I, I don't feel that that was the case. But as somebody who was in a situation wrestling with the principal, I never felt anything sexual about it. I felt uncomfortable. Why do I want to wrestle with the principal? But I would have friends who would say to me, oh, I have to go to George's house for Shabbos. And I know he's going to want to wrestle. I said, well... I was invited to George's house and I know he wants to wrestle. So I didn't go. Right. And there was one incident when I was uh, probably a late sophomore, early junior, where I was in his office and he closed the door to his office and I knew what was going to happen. So before he came back to his seat, I opened the door to the office and it never happened again. So, you know, I and, and I guess I bring it up this way to say. And again, not comparing the situations, but but 30 at times were different. There were Rabbeim who routinely hit kids in class at the time. We certainly had European Rabbeim is smacking a kid's glasses across the room, better, worse, or indifferent. But again, I don't want even to say it was the worst kept secret. Everybody knew about it. So why now do people react in such a way like we should have known better? Uh, well, I... Cannot speak as an alumnus of MTA because I never went to MTA. Right. Um, uh, I never thought that I would say, thankfully, I went to Chavetzayim, <laughs> <laughs> but I never went to MTA. The stories of George Finkelstein precede you. My cousin sure. is five years older than uh, than I, and I think you right. and I are about the same yep. age, and George Finkelstein was doing whatever he did back then. Right. Um, I think... Um, I think that I think a broad statement that has been said to me by somebody in whom I have a lot of uh, 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 trust is that at the time the administration, and I guess that most people like yourself, did not sexualize. Right. I was the too, encounter. Maybe I was too naive to sexualize. You it. may have been too naive sure. to sexualize it. Um, we do know if you've ever read. The um, uh, the legal filings against YU mm-hmm. that there were definitely people who felt it was sexual right. and lodged complaints and talk about um, uh, you know uh, perceiving uh, a res- a rabbi on top of them wrestling with an erection mm-hmm. 
uh, which uh, uh, obviously is is quite disturbing to hear through adult ears and frankly through children's ears. Sure. Um, but I would say this, and this is a very important point. If we take Mark Zomick and we take Joe Schmo, you, you know, a guy who sat next to you in class, same experiences, both wrestled George Finkelstein. The fact that you have not suffered with trauma is not a statement about you being stronger or him being weaker. Of course. It's a fact that people react differently to this sort of thing. I have, I have talked to, um, people who were victims of George and who are either a part of the lawsuit or watching it quite closely. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's impacted them tremendously. Right. You know, I look back now at my own experience and I say, okay, it was a time bomb that went off in my head when I was 46 years old. Right. How did it affect me subconsciously? It's impossible to really know. It's impossible to know. I mean, the fact of the matter is I haven't, I have not been able to have normal sleep for most of my adult life. Mm -hmm. Is that because of what happened to me when I was 13? Could be. Small bladder. (laughs) Or small bladder. (laughs) But, um, you know, I I would not belittle, and I don't think that's what you're trying to do. No, no, no. I think that part of what I'm trying to do is understand what you're trying to explain, that you and he had the same situation. You took nothing away from it. He was traumatized by it. And that's totally fair. But I think that those those of us, and in many ways, for me, it's similar to the Baruch Lanner situation, because, again, nobody didn't know what was going on, right, in NCSY at the time, because I was there at the time, that I guess for people, and I would say it's probably the majority, right, of the quote-unquote victims of either Finkelstein or Lanner who went about their lives without issue i think sometimes we see a struggle like why now 30 years later are and again i I, you're right the same situation different situation everybody takes it differently and and look i I had a discussion with my mother i guess a year and a half ago when it came out and she says well we knew he was wrestling with you it didn't seem to bother you that much and and she says you know what had it bothered you there's no way i would have gone to the administration we just would have taken you out and put you in a different school so um, you know, I had a similar discussion with my mother a year and a half ago. Right. Um, uh, one day as we were going to visit. They my, knew what happened at the time. They, well, they knew after the fact right. when I was sent home. Right. And she said, you said you were fine. Right. And she said, you know, now, you know, maybe I should have called the pediatrician. Right. That, that was, was the only that, person they that could call. The, Somebody with a doctor in front of his name, they must be able to have. Exactly. Um, I, I do think it's very important to understand as well. That is, it is very common, very, very, very common for people once a trauma has happened to not revisit the trauma for many, many years. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it's a defense mechanism of the brain. It's very, very, very common. I think that, uh, in the recent event in Teaneck in, in congregation, Renat Yisrael, where I spoke and the the event being a public discussion on this, not an event of something negative happening. No, exactly. (laughs) The public discussion on this, um, um, that featured, uh, Rabbi Yosef Blau Mm -hmm. from, uh, from Yeshiva University, who is the most outspoken, um, advocate on behalf of, of victims of sexual abuse. Who has really in the past 25 years come 180 degrees 
from his original positions I publicly. Have, I have I have no idea about his original positions. Well, he was on the original basin for Baruch Lanner. Uh, he he was, and and I can talk about the original basin for Baruch Lanner, uh, since I'm I'm familiar with it from an academic perspective. Right. Um, and you know, you, whether you know it or not, you know many of the people who were involved I in that discussion. You know many of the people who were involved in that discussion. Right. I've also seen the uh transcript of mm-hmm. the of the Baston's findings that basically have not been seen in 30 years. Right. I actually have a copy of them. Um uh I spoke as well as a basically as a a victim. Mm-hmm. Um and uh Dr. Shira Berkovitz who is a um a psychologist and uh, is an attorney who is specializing in this area also spoke. And one of the things that Rabbi Blau talked about is that, you know, when they look back at the Baruch Lanner, um, based in, um, the parameters that they set were, we're only going to speak to people who were involved in NCSY over the past XYZ years. Mm-hmm. And essentially that missed the point because, you know, basically people put this in the, in a file, this in the back of their brain. And for some people like me, it blows up years later. And they needed to speak to a larger swath of victims. Uh, by the way, I'm not sure. Had they done that fairly, it would have come out the same way. Meaning what they had done was, and, and I think this was the, th- this may be the fundamental problem up until maybe last week was, um, the, the rabbis who are sitting in judgment are incredulous to believe that their friend for whom they are sitting in judgment could ever be um, uh, in this situation where, where, the, where the accusations are true, especially when other of their rabbi's friends are countermanding, contradicting testimony of teenage witnesses. So for every witness that was brought to testify of some misconduct by Baruch Lanner, one of their respected colleagues slash one of these kids' teachers came to testify some mitigating factor why this person might have made up this yarn or how you have to relook at it. So I'm saying even had they judged their own parameters fairly, the, the result of that case might have been different. Oh, no, absolutely. Um, uh, Rabbi, ba- Rabbi Blau said specifically that um, some of the witnesses basically um, contradicted the testimony of the other witnesses, right. and now we're talking about all teenagers, and as it turns out, that the witnesses who – were who no, but some of the teenage witnesses oh, contradicted, contradicted right. and those witnesses turn out to be not telling the truth. Right. Um, you know, my own I'm I'm a kid from New York. I'm a kid from Queens. I didn't grow up in New Jersey. Right. Uh I only heard of Baruch Lanner for the first time in nineteen eighty three. Nineteen eighty three, so that's six years before the base did. Mm-hmm. And I was in Israel. And the person who was overseeing my program, the equivalent of the dorm counselor, had been uh, an active Active as a, as a leader, as a rabbi leader in NCSY, um, in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And he talked about Baruch Lanner and how he, uh, abuses children and abuses young ladies. And I asked him, what's the OU doing about it? And he basically shrugged. He went, eh. Right. You know, and so. You know, there's a famous story, could be apocryphal, I have no idea, that, um, you know, the Rav would never tell anyone what they should or should not do for a living. But supposedly he told Baruch Lanner he should go into um, Tachina. 
I don't know if it's true or not, but it's definitely a story that <laughs> I've, has been around for a very long time. Um, no, I, look, I, I know, um, the family's involved very well in, in that base state. I know all the stories and I just look and that, and again, it, it comes back to the same thing. So the, the, the base didn't happened in, was it 89 or 90, 89, 89 that, um, but it was another 10 years before the Jewish week article came out. Yeah. Right. And then people, Oh my God, we're surprised. How are you surprised? Everybody knew this was going on. You know, he lost a job over it. Certainly he had certain restrictions put on him when he moved to, moved to deal. I mean, again, I come back to the fact when I read the, when I read the, 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 the Jewish Week article about George Finkelstein and the read the Jewish Week article about Baruch Liner, that commonality for me was there was nothing there that I didn't know. I think I don't know anything beyond what I've read about George Finkelstein and speaking to people. I think it was a man in a very powerful position. Mm-hmm. Um, doing something that people fail to sexualize. Um, I think if we look back on it now, we could say it was a colossal failure of leadership mm-hmm. to address. I think from everything I've heard, and I've spoken to people who were very deep in the Barclaner situation, not just the victims, but people who are involved in, um, um, in the investigation and in the, in the Lanner commission uh, that was launched by the OU after 1999. You know, to understand Baruch Lanner is not simply to understand an abuser. We're talking about something that looks more like cult-like behavior. Right. Oh, no question. And so. And people, the enablers. I mean, they're. And, well, and, and the point being that there definitely were enablers, but to some degree were the enablers themselves caught up in the cult. To some degree were they, and you talk about friends and rabbinic friends, some of whom are very good people. To what degree did they themselves suffer from some form of cognitive dissonance. They see one plus one, but the brain doesn't allow them to make it equal to. It's funny because I I have no knowledge of this whatsoever, but I suspect one of the reasons why the leadership got caught up in it, if that's the word we would use, is they couldn't believe it the first time they heard it. They couldn't believe it the second time they heard it. By the third or fourth time, they're already now involved in the cover-up, and they already have no choice but to continue covering it up, because how can you do anything when you heard about it the first time? Well, I think that that's the nature of cover-ups. Right, exactly. Uh, but cover-up is always worse than the crime. I mean, the, I, we call that the Clinton factor. The cover-up <laughs> is always worse. I don't know. Yeah, I, I might call it the Nixon factor, <laughs> but okay, depending on where you're going to, you know, that's certainly the cover-up was way worse than the crime in Watergate. So, uh, you know, but, and I think that, look, look, today, today times are different. And I think that what happened, um, uh, this past week. Now, first of all, th- this is one quote that I've heard that I'm going to attribute to uh, Rabbi Aaron Rakefet from Gris Kolel, that Judaism is, Judaism is perfect, Jews are not. And um, and I think in, in, in large measure, um, you know, that's one of the, the, the lenses that I view these. Like I was, I, I was very, th- there are many, let's call them Hasidim of Barak Lanar, who survived and thrived and stayed from but there was a big worry on the part of many, those of us certainly who grew up from, on these Lanner Bale Chuva who were sitting around in the 90s when all this broke, that we would lose them. And I think in large measure, we we managed to, and, and so many, I mean, I'm not going to, certainly not going to name names, superstars in the Jewish community um, who quite literally became from, from his influence. I, you know, I, first of all, this is where you and I may not see the world in the same way. I mean, when you quote Rabbi Rakefet, you talk, and I've heard this, I think that, um, 
Um, I think I saw a, a, a post this week. Somebody said, you know, uh, don't confuse Jews with Judaism don't or something. Same, it's a effect. similar thing. Right. Similar thing. Um, I, I, this is not a theological discussion. And even if you, if you, if you frame it the way that you do, which is, you know, gosh, um, you know, most of those people stayed from one can invert. This is not your intent, I'm sure. But one can invert this as to say, well, the ends justify the means. No, no, the no, abuse, no, 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 I think that that, you know, could well have been part of what was going on in the minds of people at the time. He had a tremendous ability to be Makar of people. Maybe he had a tremendous ability to be Makar of people because he used cult-like approaches. And, and, and maybe some people look the other way because he had a tremendous ability right. to be Makar. And, and that's totally not what I was saying. I appreciate you. I, I understand right. that, that was not what you're uh, right. saying. I, I was almost saying the opposite, meaning that I'm thankful that People weren't associating their Judaism with his deviant behavior. Um, and I'm hopeful that in the case, you know, with, uh, the rabbi in Washington DC, that people won't associate it and literally their Judaism with his deviant behavior. And, um, look, I, I, I was very appreciative of, um, of our rabbi this past Shabbos who spoke about it from the pulpit. And, um, when I read the story of uh, uh that came out in Washington DC last last week I cried when I read the article um because here is somebody who is I don't know from the outside almost uni- universally respected in the modern orthodox community um viewed as somebody who is certainly center right in the in the organization had a very powerful voice at the table in the modern orthodox community certainly as it relates to conversions as well who took advantage of um, of women in their most vulnerable time, not only, you know, when they literally had no protection, when they were, you know, and, and not only when they were in the process of conversion, but 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 women who were regularly using the mikvah, you know, he, and and basically paraphrasing Rabbi Krohn, A, is a respected rabbi, you know, who, who you hope would live to a higher moral standard, and B, taking advantage of women in their most vulnerable part. It, you know, it makes you want to cry. Um, and then, but the question is, what's the reaction? I mean, I was, I know you commented too, the reaction I think was very swift on the part of not only his shul, um, and, um, but of his quote unquote friends in the rabbinate, you know, it was a very swift reaction, I think. Well, you, first of all, I, I think the shul deserves a tremendous amount of praise. Um, it was the board that called the police. Um, immediately, so, without question. Immediately, right. they acted swiftly. I think that the RCA acted extremely responsibly mm-hmm. um, in terms of essentially removing him from uh, any position of power. So they've suspended him, but that is the equivalent of right. expulsion. I would sure. prefer that they would expel him. Uh, people are raising questions about what the RCA did or did not do two, two years, years ago. Right when they investigated him for two other allegations. Um, supposedly, and, again, nobody wants the nuance now, but supposedly those witnesses either recanted or refused to testify. Uh, well, in one case, they did uh, They did get all the information and mm-hmm. they, um, uh, they basically got him to commit to not doing what he was doing and so on and so forth. And then the other one is, is where the, it's not entirely clear what happened. Um, and I think it's perfectly fair for people to ask 
what happened two years ago. Right. However, for what happened in 2014, I would say that the RCA um, uh, acted very responsibly, have tried to be very transparent, mm-hmm. and we have to recognize that the RCA is um, a member-based organization and its leadership has uh, evolved and changed over the past couple of years. And I think that we should, we should, just as we should criticize, um, when organizations do not act responsibly, I think that we have to praise and we have to right. laud the efforts of organizations when they do act responsibly. Mm-hmm. And so for the way that the RCA handled the situation over the past couple of weeks, I give them a lot of credit and a lot of praise. And, and then if people have questions about what happened two years ago, they should certainly bring it up with the RCA. Right. But I give a lot of credit to the leadership of the RCA for the way that this situation was handled. Right. And it's also interesting what, co- what comes out, you know, um, you know, the RCA now is putting, um, additional women in roles, which is a good thing when it comes to this. So there's always somebody who, who anybody could talk to if they have an issue. I was also interested to see, and, and, and by the way, t- wholly not surprised that our local mikvah association in, in Teaneck, Basically is run completely by women with almost no involvement from any rabbi other than to make sure the mikvah is kosher at some point. Well, uh, you know, for those from outside of Teaneck who aren't familiar with it, uh, the local mikvah association brought it after, in the event of, in the aftermath of the Barry Freundale scandal, uh, brought it an outside investigative mm-hmm. organization to come and check the mikvah for any sort of recording devices and declared it free. They also, change the policies of the mikvah to make sure that if any male were to enter the mikvah, rabbi, workman, or other uh, or otherwise, um, that individual will always be escorted by a woman. Hmm. So, I mean, I think uh, in both cases, be it the uh, changing of the RCA's policies, as well as what's happened in our local mikvah, right. I think it, it's a positive. And essentially, you know, Without getting into theological debates, just talking from a very practical level, uh, giving women a seat at the table when we talk about issues that are about women right. is absolutely critical. Right. Absolutely right. critical. And look, and I think that when it comes to the teenage mikvah, the table is pretty much only women sitting at the table, except in exceptions. So maybe teenage is more involved than other communities. I don't know, but, uh, I, I would guess perhaps we might be. Yeah. Um, but, but I think that there's, you know, uh, I want to go back to Rabbi Blau speaking at the Renaud event a couple of weeks ago and somebody, I forget if it was an answer to a question or if it's in, um, or just part of his, his statement. Um, when he addressed modern orthodoxy that you and I are part of mm-hmm. sitting here in Tainic, New Jersey versus other areas of orthodoxy, including various flavors of Haredi, whether it's yeshivish, whether it's, uh, whether it's Hasidic and, and, uh, you know, other, other forms and people. And I think that the question was, you know, are we more progressed, progressive on these issues? And his answer more or less is in our own minds, we are, but in reality, (laughs) we're not. Right. Um, And, you know, one can think of many instances where, you know, cover-ups still happen or people bend over backwards. Um, I do think that the Freundel example is a positive one. Right. And why is it a positive one? And, and the local rabbi, the local Chabad rabbi here in Teaneck, Rabbi Ephraim Simon, um, said to me at Simchas Torah that he saw a real positive in this, in that five years ago, ten years ago, a guy like Barry Freundel would 
be quietly be set out to pasture. Right. Well, um, you know, my, I had this discussion with my grandfather yeah. 30 plus years ago. My grandfather was president of the Urban Council of America from maybe 54 to 56. Um, or 56 to 50, you know, that, that vicinity before 1960. And he said there were any number of incidents in the 60s where rabbis were quite misbehaving and their friends would go over to them to say, you need to resign, you need to move to Florida and you need to stop, uh, you know, get out of Dodge. And the rabbis were scared enough of what would happen that they generally listened to those situations. Right? It's a different, you know. Uh, I think it's, it's different. I think that there's issues of power. I think that there's issues of um, money. I think that there's more than we would like to acknowledge. I think that there's issues of, um, you know, who we favor in the community and who we marginalize in the community. So over the past two weeks, in addition to the Freundel um, incident, um, there was the the death of a guy named Joey D'Angelo. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this. No. So who is Joey D'Angelo? Joey D'Angelo was born a Satmar Chassid by the name of Yoeli Deutsch. And Yoeli Deutsch would go to the mikveh every day like a good Satmar boy. And at the age of seven, he was raped horribly in the mikveh. And he was pretty much abandoned by his family. Um, I met him or I saw him on a couple of occasions over the past two years. Um, he was a rocker. He had long hair. He didn't wear a yarmulke. He had makeup on. You know, he had, you know, I think he was 32 when he passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not clear, apparently, and it will never be clear whether he took his own life or whether he overdosed. And to hear the story. Which is effectively the same thing. Right. And, you know, there was uh, uh, there was uh, somebody about six or eight week, weeks ago, I think it was. I think his name was David Gordon. He was uh, an outspoken victim of sexual abuse. Uh, I think he published in the Huffington Post. He was in the Israeli army. He fought in Gaza right, and he took his people, own life. A number of people, yeah. You know, here was a, you know, so we and have. There was another case of a Hasidic boy whose father was well known in the community who committed suicide the night of his wedding. Yeah, yeah. And so if we look at Joey D'Angelo in the case, a guy changed his name to Joey D'Angelo. Right, exactly, right? yeah. Uh, if we look at people like that, we say, you know, why did not the story of Joey D'Angelo, Yoeli Deutsch, motivate his own community or motivate our community. I cannot tell you how many people have come to me since I went public quietly and whispered in my ear, hey, you know what happened to me too. Right. I can't tell you in my shul alone, in my shul alone, people who've come over to me. Mm-hmm. I've been contacted from all over via Facebook, via email, via telephone uh, from people, some of whom are prominent in the community. Um, uh, about telling me their stories. You know, the statistics of abuse are pretty frightening. They're so frightening that they're not believable totally right. until yeah. you actually confront them. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you that there's me before I had my, went into post-traumatic distress and me afterwards. So here are the basic statistics. It is estimated across populations that one in four women by the age of 18 will have been sexually abused and one in six men by the age of 18 will have been sexually abused. Now I was told this, you know, four years ago, five right, years ago. You don't ago. believe it. It's don't believe it. Yeah, can't crazy. believe it. And then once I actually started to deal with my own trauma and especially once I started to speak to others, 
I think it's low, particularly on males in our community, especially when you speak to people in the in the Haredi community and you hear stories about mikvah. I mean, I once took a tour of Borough Park with uh, some Hasidic friends of mine, and the tour was essentially, you see that? My somebody tried to rape my my nephew in that mikvah. Do you see that? Such and such as kid was abused in that mikvah and that shul over there. And I'm not exaggerating. This is exactly right. what the tour was like. Um, so there's something fundamentally wrong with society, but it's not just in the Haredi community. It isn't. Right. Maybe we are um, quicker to call the police. But it's not just in the Haredi community. It exists in our community as well. Well, I think that it's probably, and I'm certainly no expert, but it's probably very normal for the abused to blame themselves and to be embarrassed by the fact that they were abused and think they caused it and are therefore less likely to speak publicly about it or to bring it up. I also think that in the Haredi community, much of the cover-up, like, um, like for example, I always remember the stories uh, that they used to tell at Hask, where the kid with special needs would be put in the closet during the shidduch meetings because everybody was worried about the other siblings and their, you know, and their dating, you know. So it, a lot of it is the Haredim are about keeping up with the Joneses. And, uh, you know, and, but I, I, it, it's absolutely true. Then the Haredi community, things like sexual abuse in the family, people will, Ignore it intentionally because at, at times, yeah. not always, right. at times because they're worried about shidduch prospects right. because the way that the shidduch system works in the Haredi community is essentially like the NFL draft. There's first round draft picks, right. second, no, it's, right. not, no. it's not a joke. It's exactly how it works. Right. And, and any blimp, you know, any blimp, two arrests in the NFL are going to push you down. If you, they're yeah. going to push your family down right. and your family is not going to be high on the pecking order. Right. But, you know, again, let's not you know, let's not pat ourselves out on the backs in in the modern orthodox community. Let's face it. At least let me say my opinion, as you put right. out there. Uh, I think that YU has um, has been um, extremely uh, misdirected in how it's addressed the allegations around MTA. Um, its apologies have been uh, 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 halfway at best. Uh, it's hidden behind. It's hidden behind legalism. Well, I was going to say there. There, ever, anything that comes out as a result of a three hundred million dollar lawsuit is going to completely be vetted by lawyers. There's no question. And, and but you know, you know, this is supposed to be a rabbinic institution, right? And who am well, I? I? I'm not as great a rabbi as the rabbis in YU, right. but I do remember in fifth grade having been beaten into my head metaphorically, not literally. <laughs> You know, the notion of the Zekin, you know, what, what is, what is the price for damages? Nezek, Tsar, Repoy, Shevis, and Boshas. Okay. Paying for the damage, paying for the suffering, uh, 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 paying for the medical, uh, healing, paying for the embarrassment, uh, and, uh, uh, and, and paying for the time missed as a result. That's Shevet and Boshas. I right. confused the two, way. right? Now, I'm not taking any stand on the lawsuit itself. I'm not right. talking about the lawsuit. What I am talking about is that YU has basically said we're going to stonewall legally because we can. I don't remember anywhere in the Torah where it talks about the statute of limitations. Right. So, so the uh, so what 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 maybe disappointed me about YU's um, performance is that once the lawsuit was finally thrown out and they were freer. To discuss it, they chose to continue 
There was no sincere apology. And the offer, I'm sorry, of, well, anybody who feels really bad, who feels that they were harmed, they're free to come and and gain of our services here at Yeshiva University, the site where they were abused by George Finkelstein or the other two people <laughs> named in the lawsuit. So it's interesting also. We were um, – the Dafyomi cycle is learning Yavamas now. Right. Um, which is fairly complicated unless they have a good picture book, and then it's pretty straightforward. And I was explaining it uh, – Never tell it to your kids. Uh, don't, well, don't, 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 don't tell the that. picture book. <laughs> I don't know. It's almost impossible just in black and white Aramaic letters, my, my <laughs> recollection from high school. But anyway, so um, I, we were talking about it at work, and I deal with a fair number of computer programmers at work. And, um, and perhaps this is, you know, the, uh, you'll see why I bring it up is that Yavamas is when there are two sets of business rules in conflict and you need to figure out a way to arbitrate, arbitrate the conflicting business rules. Um, and, and I think that, and, and, and this is why I still think that the modern, I don't want to say with modern Orthodox, we should be patting the, patting ourselves on the back, but, um, the what bumps against the Haredi community, what, what what the two sets of business rules in this case bumping up against each other, is their their acknowledgement that there's somebody who's wronged on the one side and Das Torah on the other side, or their view of what they what Das Torah means to them, and or if you want to put it, their their view of what Amunas Chachamim means to them, and their Rebbe who they go to to ask what should I name my kid, what school should I send my kid to, you know, look they're going to the Rebbe to say, hey you send you told me to send my kid to Torah Moshe Aaron Vietzchak, and now he's you know no 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 so they you know they're coming back from the Rebbe in conflict right they that, that's the view certainly in the hasidic community whereas in the modern orthodox community i mean das torah is i would say pretty much non-existent amunas hachamim is understood in a different way and if it doesn't make you know if the rabbi tells me not to go to the police you know i don't think i'm going to go to the police uh, you know i i think that you are naive uh giving a little bit too much credit okay that's fair so you know i can cite one i'm a big down the kind of a guy uh uh, that's fantastic. And, uh, you know, your kids are fortunate. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, there's a, a, a case that came up about six months ago. Um, and it got a bunch of coverage at the time. Um, as a, a young man named Evan Zauder, who was okay. a teacher here in one of the local day schools, and he had been found to have child pornography. And, um, he was told by the police, don't go on the Internet. He couldn't control himself. Mm-hmm. And so he did go on the Internet and then they did a full investigation, discovered not only did he have child pornography, but he was soliciting minors to come right. and meet him for sexual encounters. Much farther in the park. than they thought, right. Uh, and he ended up pleading guilty because they had tremendous evidence. Right. Um, and they were able to find at least one underage person who uh, testified to what happened. So he pleaded guilty and there was a period uh, between when he uh, pleaded guilty to when he was being sentenced. And at the time that he pleaded guilty, there was a, a release by the FBI um, saying, you know, Evan Zauder, you know, pleaded, pleaded guilty. guilty right? And it included uh, the fact that he had had, he had, basically had sex with a minor in a car in a park and so on and so forth. It wasn't only about child pornography. What came to light a few months ago, and this is right before sentencing, um, what came to light is that there were about 60 or 65 letters 
of uh, character reference written right. for him. Now, Evan Zauder had been a golden boy. Uh, he had worked at Ben-Ay HIR. Assurin, he right. had worked at B'nai Assurin. Mm-hmm. He had uh, gone to YU. He had founded the Alumni Association, the Yeshiva Kotel. And he had letters of recommendations of all sorts from all kinds of characters um, in this community, in Israel. Um, you know, among the two people who wrote uh, character references for him were Rabbi Kenny Brander, which was a fairly power of character reference, and uh, Dr. David Pelkovitz, who wrote something that we could call almost pseudo-diagnostic to the point that it's actually offensive to read, saying, as it, as it, in my 30 years of being a psychologist, um, such and such, and I say that after 10 years, um, you know, he's very likely to make, you know, to have made a full recovery and be positive to society. People can go on the Internet and read the actual uh, text of this. And and it was quite an embarrassment because here David Pelkovitz was seen as the white knight on the issues of abuse, when in fact he was one of many, many figures within leadership, leading figures within the modern Orthodox community who who um, who uh, who wrote character references for Evan Zauder. Now, the irony and why I picked these two to talk about, because there are actually other people who wrote letters of recommendation is that Kenny Brander and David Pelkovitz are, you know, two of the leaders of YU's task force overseeing right. the response to sexual abuse. Right. Okay. So if this is how YU responds, convey. Okay. So I have two questions that I, well, a comment and a question that we're going to start wrapping up. And I think it's a good question to wrap up with. Um, first is a quote comes to mind from one of your co-panelist at the Renat event, uh, the lawyer psychologist whose name is Dr. Shira Berkowitz, Dr. Shira Berkowitz, who said that we say that people can't control themselves. I think this is her quote, that basically people, we say, oh, he can't control himself, but he's not walking down the street and raping everybody he sees. So clearly he can control himself in certain situations. So it's like a bogus excuse to say that it's beyond his self-control. We all have self-control that we should be able to, uh, to use. But I, your 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 comments about uh, Dr. Pelkovitz and, and Rabbi Brander and others who did write letters in Zadar's for Zadar's character is: Do we say that guilty, throw away the key, burn them in effigy? They're done. I mean, where, where does I mean? I, I know Rabbi Yudin got a lot of flack for allowing Baruch Liner to live in his home during this during his trial process before he went to jail. Um, and I'm not sure I, I, I agree or disagree. I could say maybe Rabbi Yudin was the wrong choice as the rebel community, whatever. But aren't, isn't it okay for some people, I don't know, to have compassion and love the sinner? If, <laughs> um, if you, um, first of all, you know, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not a person who talks about burning people in effigy. I um, think you know me. Of course. Um, uh, I, have sympathy for victims, however, on on this issue, right. uh, more than I do for predators. And I think I, there are I, ways to meaning that if right. the, if the vic, if you can send the predator to another city and let them have compassion for him there, so it's not in the face of the victim, that's probably a better situation. I, I, look, look, you know, I think even just comparing the responses, I I I, I say that you know, Rabbi Brander's response was par of it best. Right. His letter was par of it best. And if you read through all the letters, they talk about mixing, um, uh, uh, appealing to the judge 
to temper justice with mercy. Right. So instead of going th- to jail for 120 right. years, it goes for 110 years. I think that the content of Dr. Pelkovitz's uh, letter was quite disturbing right. in what it was. And you should think but, that should disqualify him from uh, uh, or question his role in uh, a leadership uh, capacity at YU for that. I, I'm not here to draw conclusions, but let's just say that I found and others found his letter to be quite disturbing in what it was, mm-hmm. which was uh, not a simple temper justice with mercy note, but sounded quasi uh, diagnostic. Right. And you can argue that somebody in his position who is viewed as the white knight, your words, and a leader in this community, perhaps should never pen a letter in defense of well, the, a victim. But the point, the point is, Evan Zouder, you know, once upon a time a golden boy, you know, there's, it certainly feel, felt to me and feels to me that there's something wrong in our community when out of those 60 letters, a good half of them at least came from rabbis right. and prominent figures of all sorts. How many people are standing up for victims the way that they stood up for Evans Outer? Now let's talk about sexual abuse. I talked about one in four women. One in six men. So that's one in five members of our community. That's a much higher risk, a much higher rate than people who are going to ever be killed, God forbid, by terrorist acts, by Ebola, by, you know, you pick it. Okay. This is something which is ubiquitous in every community and ubiquitous in the Jewish community, the Orthodox community, the non-Orthodox community, the modern Orthodox community, the, the, the Haredi community. And where do you find people speaking out the same way that they speak out about terrorism? Where do you find it? Where do you find it? Well, here, here's an example. They all spoke out, but they spoke out on behalf of the predator. They spoke out on behalf of a convicted pedophile. Explain it to me. Right. Explain it to me. I'll go even further. Barry Freundell, a very prominent figure. Part of the reason why it was so disturbing to me is I know somebody who was converted by Barry Freundell right. and I was at the wedding. Mattier Lone, a very, sure. very prominent figure. Michael Broyd, not at all right. related to a sexual abuse scandal. Who's trying to make a comeback. Now. Not at all related to a sexual abuse scandal, but a fundamental ethics scandal related right. to academic principles. We're it's talking tr- about not marginal figures here. Right. We're talking about major figures here. And I'm talking, and this is modern orthodox. This is in the modern orthodox community. What is going on in, in our community that we would like to believe is this idyllic is idyllic island of sanity, you know, in, in a, in this, in this complex world when major figures, major, major figures have been found to have tremendous moral lackings. I, I can't explain it. Well, I, I, I'm certainly not here to defend them or explain it. I do think that while we cite these examples, the fact is, is that we are talking about Rabbi Freundale that happened recently. Very recently, and Rabbi Broy that happened a couple of years ago. But the the six or seven cases we're discussing are the same six or seven cases over thirty years. Now, while I am not in in any way questioning the statistics of one in five, which quite possibly might be true, well, the, the legion of offenders being dragged off is is the minority of the people we look up to. And I might argue that the reason why Evan Zatter was the golden boy was because of his proclivities in this area where he was working hard to, you know, maybe those were some of the signs 
that, you know, who knows? Could, uh, could well be. I, I have no idea. I, I just, look, I, I, I am one to, to, to try to find, um, good people who are not perfect, but who are good to look up to and, 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 and try to put those six or seven or ten or a hundred people who misbehave in the, in the little box they belong in. And well, let's forget about them. When we talk about the little box, you know, and I mentioned earlier, what are the motivations of people? And we talked a little bit about, I don't know how you describe the Zatter case. I mean, I think the, the last point I'll make, I see you looking at the clock, um, is Rabbi Yisrael Belsky. Oh, right. From the number two POSIC at the OU. At the OU mm-hmm. Rabbi Yisrael Belsky was complicit actively complicit yes. in a cover-up in Lakewood. And I give the Rabbeim and Farakaway credit for saying, you can't come raise money here anymore. But here is a child who was molested by uh, Rabbi Kolko. Well-known in that situation. R- Rabbi, junior Rabbi Kolko, who's, whose family, who along with his family, were, they were kicked out of right, Lakewood. Ostracized. They followed all of the rules. Mm-hmm. Rabbi Belsky wrote a note that basically accused the father of being an abuser. Even after Kolko pleaded guilty, uh, Rabbi Belsky stated that, well, just because he pleaded guilty doesn't mean that he's guilty. Right. And yet he remains the number two POSIC right. at the Orthodox Union, which is fundamentally a modern Orthodox institution. Right. So how many people of our leaders, the Orthodox Union, the most prolific Jewish organization in the world, how, how, uh, with its national, with its global reach, possible exception of Chabad, right? Okay. <laughs> um, how is it possible, we would say in Hebrew, that this man is still in that position? Right. I can't explain it's it. It's a good question. And I think that, uh, you know, we looked especially now to our leaders for answers to these questions. I think it, it is certainly my hope if this week's performance is any indication of future performance that maybe our leaders are finally getting it. We would never say that they got it. There's, I'm sure, a long way to go, but maybe they are finally hearing the cries of the community that they, that we're looking to them to stand up against their, their friends, so to speak, and, um, and say who was right and who was wrong here. We need cultural change, and I hope that, I hope that the tide is turning, but what we need is a change in our culture. And with that, we close. David, I thank you very much for joining uh, me on this program. It was a, a tremendous learning experience for me and hopefully the listeners. I know it's not an easy topic for you to discuss and for other people to hear, um, but is one clearly where we need to make sure everybody's eyes are opened to um, um, to the dangers in life that you know what that modern life proposed. Um, you know, put in front of us and no one should let their kids go to camp or school without having that discussion. And probably rule number one for parents is believe what your kids tell them. And, and camp, school and Israel programs for a year. I mean, we have to go with our eyes open. It's a different generation. It's a different world. David Heifetz, thank you for joining us. Mark Zamek on the stunt show. Stay tuned for, uh, if you're listening to the show on a Thursday, stay tuned for Throwback Thursday. The show is available if you missed any portion of it as a podcast or at NachumSiegel.com or in the NSN app. This is Mark Zamek reminding you that no matter how long a journey may seem, every step you take brings you one closer to the end. God, make it a great day, and I'll see you next time.